The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we look at how new science and new challenges are pushing us to think differently about the role of bacteria in healthcare and pest control in agriculture. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Ed Young, an award-winning science writer who reports for The Atlantic. His work has also appeared in National Geographic, Wired, The New York Times, Nature, Scientific American, among many others. He is the author of the best-selling book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. Ed, it's always great to have you back. Hi, thanks for having me again. So your book is all about microbes and microbiomes. Um, but what I wanted to talk about first is the changing kind of wider perception of microbes and bacteria. Up until fairly recently, I mean, bacteria pretty much always played the villain's part. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's one of the great themes in the book that um, these things have been misunderstood and neglected for a very long time. And I think that dates back to some of the earliest days in microbiology. When they were first discovered, they were, no one really knew whether they were anything important. So they were kind of neglected and ignored. And then <clears throat> in and then in very quick succession, um, people realized that they were actually responsible for many of the most infamous diseases um, that have afflicted humanity for many centuries. So things like plague and typhoid and cholera, tuberculosis, you know, and, and very, very, very quickly within a few years of each other, scientists realized that germs were responsible for these diseases. Um, so they forever became known as, as villains, as things that we needed to destroy unless they were going to destroy us first. Um, <clears throat> and so that idea still, you know, still, still permeates our culture today. We think of as of microbes, of bacteria as germs. Um, we think that they cause disease. We think that they are signs of dirt um, and decay. You know, if we, if we find um, bacteria on our surfaces, like on on my phone or on the computer that I'm using or, or on like the, the doorknob of um, or, or uh, like or on, on a doorknob or a handrail or anything like that. We think that those surfaces are therefore dirty. Um, so they, they do have a very, a very negative perception. They have a, a some, somewhat of a PR problem. That is starting to change though with some of the research that come up. So now we're starting to get more of this idea that microbes and bacteria or at least some bacteria is is good. Right. Yeah. I, I mean let's uh Obviously, there are microbes that cause diseases, um, and they are a very important threat, but they are also by far away in the minority. Um, you know, the vast majority of microbes are, you know, at worst benign and at best actually beneficial to us. So we're starting to realize that, um, that all animals live in symbiosis with, um, other, with you know, vast communities of microbes that live in their guts or in their skins or just all around and inside their bodies, and that these organisms play often a really important part in the lives of their hosts. There's a, a line in the prologue of your book, actually, that I quite like and have shamelessly used when talking about microbiome to others, which is all zoology is really ecology. Um, right, which I really yeah. Quite liked. <laughs> Can you unpack that yeah. a bit for us? 
Uh, totally. That was uh, that was sort of the one of the central central lines of the book. It was there in like the the book proposal I wrote. It was always there, like framing this idea from the from the start of my head. So, you know, when when we think about zoology, when we think about animals, we often think about individuals you know they, that's the sort of animating concept we we focus on the lives of individuals um but it really every single individual um whether you're talking about a cheetah or a hummingbird or a human is an entire community it lives its life together with all of these um other organisms that are invisible but that are also very influential and to to get at that biology to understand what's going on we need ecology which is the science of communities in the natural world the science of relationships um and and i think that's really what we need to understand when we think about the animal world you know if i go to a zoo and i look at the enclosure with like say a bear in it that bear isn't just one thing it's an entire world it's lots of different relationships and and dependencies between that one organism and all the others that live in its body and that's that's sort of the the core of ecology and that's why you know all the things that we think of when we think of ecology um when we think of uh, food webs or um or succession where like one community of organisms replaces another all of those principles apply to a single animal life this is a, a, this idea I, I really like because it also speaks to how science likes to kind of pick out a thing and study that thing. So study a microbe or study a bear, but we can't sort of get the full picture of that thing unless we look at it in context or look at it and how it relates to the broader world around it. We, we miss pieces of that puzzle if we only look at the thing um, in isolation. Totally. Um, you know, it's, it's almost... Um it's almost cliche now to to accuse western science of being a bit too reductionist but but it does apply here um you know we we sort of were very very good um in modern biology at at sort of like you say um picking out particular parts and working out how those work in extreme detail um but those those more relational um sides to biology where i think only now starting to to get a proper handle on not just like how to study them but also why they're important is there a, a key moment in this shift um from think from science thinking about bacteria as individual things that cause disease only to being more about or the shift to thinking more about a microbiome and these relationships is that is that a clear definition or a clear divide in science or is this a, a very gray kind of um, <clears throat> slow process i think it's been a gray slow process it's certainly been very gradual you know loads of people have actually understood this um principle quite early on um you know even in the heady days of germ theory um, people like pasteur realized well he he suspected and and slightly wrongly but kind of almost on the right lines that it like if you removed all the microbes from an organism it would probably die um so i think he understood that like we we sort of depend on these to an extent and um over the the centuries and decades um you know scientists have studied these things um but i i don't think it's really permeated the popular consciousness um for for various reasons um but and and it's only really in the last i would say 
couple of decades, uh, maybe ten to ten to fifteen years, that that it's really become um, mainstream. You know, there've always been people working on this, but they're now at the sort of core, the center of biology. They're attracting attention and funding, um, and I think that's for two main reasons. Uh, one is technological, so we now have the tools that we need in order to study the microbial world properly. So rather than having to culture uh, microbes in laboratories, which is difficult to do for like 99% of them, we can actually work out who is where by sequencing their DNA straight out of an environmental sample. Um, so that's one thing. There's also been a cultural shift, I think, because of that that technological advancement, scientists who have been looking at these issues from very disparate fields, from things like um, you know, gastroenterology or zoology or botany, have started working together and realizing that actually many of the same ecological principles underpin their work in lots of different organisms in different fields. And I think that's a kind of coming together, that, that cultural unity um, is also uh, driven the sense of, of this is an important thing you know i don't think there was a mic you know uh, the, the microbiome before it became a sort of sexy buzzword people were talking about the science of microbial ecology um but um you know it, it, i think it only became this sort of thriving abundant field um in recent decades so it's always <clears throat> been there but just recently it started to capture some some of the spotlight yeah i would say that's right so I think probably most people now kind of have an understanding that most animals and plants um, live in some kind of symbiotic relationships with some of our <clears throat> microbes or have some kind of relationship with, with our microbes. Mm -hmm. um, but I was really surprised just how many and varied these relationships are and also how deeply, deeply important they can be, which I think I was quite surprised by. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so um, they they are very very varied. Um, you know, they you can get um, uh, like you know, like humans. We have um, bacteria living inside our guts, um, on our skin, in our mouths. There are insects that have um, bacteria living inside their very cells, um, inside special organs that they've created to house those microbes. Um, you know, and and the in terms of the relationships. Um, so there are, uh, you know, our microbes help to help us to digest our food, to train our immune system, to um, sculpt and shape our organs. Then you've got um, you've got insects that uh, have microbacteria that act as nutritional supplements that provide them with nutrients that are missing from their diet. Um, there are deep sea worms and clams that have um, bacteria that provide them with all their nutrients so that they have lost the ability to eat. They have lost their mouths and guts because they are bacteria to provide them with all they need. Um, there are squid that use microbes to produce light. There are um, worms that have microbes that help them regenerate. Um, there are all these incredible, fantastical abilities um, that, uh, that animals um, only have because of their microbial partners. And in many cases, this isn't a we live better with them. In some cases, it's actually a we can't do it on our own anymore. <clears throat> right, exactly. So, so um, for example, um, those insects I told you about um, with the nutritional supplements, you know, those are, those are sap-sucking bugs. They're things like aphids and cicadas, uh, leafhoppers. If those insects did not have their bacteria, they would 
they would die. You know, they wouldn't be able to get the nutrients that they need from their diet. And the corollary of that is that those insects would never have been able to tap into that food source without those bacteria in the first place. So those microbes allowed them to to take take up this evolutionary opportunity to radiate into this group that now numbers something like 85,000 species. They would never have been able to do that without those microbes. Um, you know, and some of them, um, some of them have these r- ridiculously complicated dependencies with their bacteria. They ha- they they have microbes that help them to make um, important nutrients like amino acids, but it's a combination of genes from the host insect and the bacteria that work together to produce those amino acids. Um, you know, if without either of the, uh, neither partner can do it all on their own, so they're completely intertwined at this biochemical level. Like if they if they were if they either one of them tried to live independently, they they wouldn't be able to. This is fascinating to me because I want to know how these dependencies first came into being. Like the aphid you just use an, uh, used as an example, like how did that relationship start? Because presumably it started as two separate creatures and at some point they decided or they decided they, they teamed up um, and became dependent upon each other over time. But have we been able to pinpoint where some of these relationships, especially these deep relationships started? Yeah, that's a really good question, and, and I think a, a critical issue for um, for people in the field. Um, often these things are very difficult to study because you know they happened a long time ago, and um, and their their first you know the first footsteps of that partnership when the partners started walking together have been lost in deep time. And often you know the animals and the the microbes now are very different to what they used to be. They they have changed a lot. Um, their, their genomes are very different. Um, but there are a few cases where you can look at what those partnerships were like originally. So, um, there is this incredible story, I think, of a, um, an, a retired firefighter named Thomas Fritz, who uh, was cutting down a tree, um, near his property, and, um, he slipped and he impaled his hand with a branch. And that wound became infected, and, um, some, re- some doctors took samples from the wound, um, and sent it off to some labs for testing. And it had a bacterium inside it that seemed to be um, a a perfect match for another thing called Sodalis, which lives inside insects. Sodalis is not a free-living bacterium. It can't infect wounds. It's got this kind of weird, tiny, shrunken, degenerate genome. But this um, other microbe that was found in the hand of the firefighter turns out to be like kind of a wild sodalis, like what what this bacterium would have been like before it became this inextricable part of an insect host. Um, And so from that, we can look at the sort of things that allow um, these partnerships to form in the first place. And I think it's probably the case that a lot of these things happen by accident. You know, they, these are microbes that are there in the environment. They get taken up somehow into the body of an animal. Maybe they're swallowed in a meal or, you know, through an injury or maybe they're transferred by um, a parasite or a predator or something like that. Um, and then they they stay there. Somehow they have the right 
tools, the right uh, genetic qualities to to um, to set up a a lasting infection in their host. Um, and maybe these partnerships are very different when they start off. Maybe they are something more akin to a chronic infection, um, and then over time become more benign and then eventually beneficial. So how similar are individual humans or cats or elephants microbiomes from others of the same species? I mean, I guess the question I want to ask is how similar would my microbiome be to yours? Right. I think there are substantial variations there. Um, you know, we, we vary much more in, um, in terms of the microbes we carry than in the genes we share. Um, and the, the weird thing I think is that, um, you know, we, we understand some of the things that affect, um, those differences. We know that, um, our diet matters, um, you know, probably, uh, the way we're born, the way we grow up, um, our genes, our immune systems, um, the medicines we take, um, all of these things can influence, um, which microbes, <coughs> um, which microbes call us home. But, if we look at very large studies, we look at the largest studies of the microbiome that have been published so far, they can only explain a very small proportion of that variation, so maybe something like 10%. So we're still largely in the dark about what makes my microbiome different to yours or that of any of our listeners. And I think that just goes to show how early on we are in this science. So even though there's a lot of ads on the internet that seem to know what a healthy or normal human human microbiome looks like, we don't really know yet. That's right. I mean, don't don't believe the hype for sure. The, this is not um, a predictive science for any mean by any means. You know, you can you can send your your poop off for sequencing, and they will tell you what microbes are living inside your gut. But you cannot tell from looking at that whether you are healthy, what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, what you should eat or, or what you should change about your lifestyle in order to influence the microbes inside you. Um, you know, at the moment, this is still very much a descriptive science. It's still not one that's, um, that's actually predictive. Yeah, I mean, definitely, if somebody kind of pays attention to science news, they'll probably find mentions of the microbiome everywhere. And, and you might definitely think that sometimes these incredible headlines that come out of these areas of science um, seem like microbes are allowing us to cure almost everything, like complex, difficult things like obesity and cancer. And uh, right. it definitely starts to sound a bit like a cure-all that maybe we'll be in time exposed to or in time, we'll find that that's, you know, we've gone down the wrong path. It, it, some of the headlines are extraordinarily hyperbolic. I, I, I agree. I think, I think there, I think hype has run truly amok in this field. And I think it hurts um, the research a lot. You know, um, the microbiome has been linked to pretty much every in a condition or illness under the sun. Um, and most of this comes from very small, um, underpowered, um, somewhat weak correlative studies where you take small numbers of people um, and or animals, compare healthy and sick um, individuals, and then look at changes in their microbiome. Um, and, you know, you, you can't tell from that whether those changes are a cause or a consequence of those conditions. And, um and even in cases where you, you sort of nudge at causality, where you can do experiments, for example, where you 
treat with animals with antibiotics and you see if the the loss of those microbes has an influence on their condition or you can do transplants where you move microbes from one animal to another and you see symptoms of conditions moving across and that hints at causality but it doesn't say like whether the microbes are initiating or exacerbating a condition it doesn't say like whether um whether any kind of causal influence of those microbes matters in in the long run so you know here's a here's a very very overhyped example um that that irks me somewhat so there are studies with mice showing that um if you treat with antibiotics at an early age you change the microbiome and you um increase the risk that those rodents will put on weight later on and this is obviously turned into headlines that scream um antibiotics are making us fat you know maybe antibiotics as as um, that we're taking as kids are fueling the obesity epidemic well, in those studies, the increase in body fat in these animals was very small, like on the order of 10%, maybe 20% of the absolute maximum. And, you know, that's that's not a huge amount. You know, that's like me putting on maybe like 14, 15 pounds. Like I would, I would rather I wasn't 15 pounds heavier, but it's not going to suddenly tip me into this, you know, into the edge of becoming obese. Um, and I think that's what matters. Uh, the, this field is very good at finding statistically significant effects, but not that great yet at finding actually significant effects or, or working out whether what it's showing is actually relevant to us in our daily lives, much less like the explanation or the cure all for all of these conditions, all of these 20th century plagues. Um, and, and I think this is, I think that the microbiome may well turn out to be important. I, I think that these, these microbes play such an influential role in our lives. Um, you know, I'm perfectly willing to accept that they could be important but we need to still show that um and there is a massive tendency to just assume that any change in the microbiome in the context of illness must be a bad thing so you know scientists talk about this word dysbiosis which means that the community as a whole has turned into this negative state that influences our health in a bad way and i think that the idea is very sound i think it, it it's again this ecological idea that this that rather than having like a germ that causes a disease you have an entire community that's gone rogue fine fine but the th term is thrown around with reckless abandon so you know if you if you look at a microbiome that's been um that's been uh, if you look at what happens to the microbiome after a dose of antibiotics and you see changes you are like it's so common for people to say oh well that's dysbiosis um but you haven't actually shown that the changes are bad. You've just assumed that they're bad. Uh, and likewise, you know, you, you, you can look at, say, the microbiome. I'm just going to pick a random disease. Let's say, like, multiple sclerosis. You look at the microbiome of someone with multiple sclerosis. You find differences in which bacteria they have compared to someone who's healthy. And you say, aha, we have found dysbiosis here um you know and maybe those changes in those microbes are making that person ill but that's a complete tautology like you've assumed it's dysbiosis because that person is sick and then you're saying that they're sick because they have dysbiosis um it's it's kind of this ridiculous logical loop but it happens so often in studies in this field it's 
one of these complications when we start, when we can't look at something in a really reductive way and we have to take the larger relationships and look at a community of things is it becomes much more complicated and much more chaotic and much more difficult to tease out causation. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think actually part of it is the fact that so much of the study of the human microbiome in particular doesn't come from people with an ecological background. It comes from people with a clinical background. And I think they are very used to studying things in quite a reductive way. So, you know, a lot of medicine involves these these quite this quite basic arithmetic. You know, you either lack something like a vitamin, so you put that thing back in and you're better, or you have something you shouldn't have, like a virus, so you take that thing out and you're better. So it's always trying to find that component that you either add or subtract um and and that's sort of what's happened with microbiome studies so you compare people who are healthy and sick you find like which microbes are lacking or which microbes are more abundant in the sick person and then you think okay you either take those out or you put them back in uh and and then you're better and and actually it's almost certainly going to be more complicated than that the 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 microbes within us that might influence our health will um, do so in the context of all the other microbes that live with us, in the context of our genes, our immune systems, the food we eat. Um, so there's there's a lot of complexity here, and I think we're only starting to grapple with it both technically and conceptually. So how do we actually take a closer look at people's microbiome? I mean, is looking at what comes out of us the best way to do it, or are we missing some of the picture? Yeah, so it's hard, right? You know, when when we look at, say, the gut microbiome, you're looking at stool samples. Now, the gut is an incredibly long tube. The microbes within it vary from one part to the other. They vary, you know, into the tube as well. So, so from you know, just from the matter of like a millimeter or so um, across the intestine in any direction, the community of microbes we have can change. So, I think we need a better understanding of like who exactly who is where and like the the geography of that. So, so um, you know how the microbiome varies in different parts of the gut or the mouth or the skin um you know how those microbes interact with each other with us um you know we we need to just get more savvy about um understanding how those organisms are connected to each other and to us rather than just saying like okay who is there let's just do like a a, a very broad census it seems to me like there's definitely a focus on human health when we talk about the microbiome, certainly when we're talking about the microbiome in with the general public. Um, and this focus on what we can do to improve it, to improve our health, how we can approach it when we're having poor health and whether or not that's related to our microbiome. And as we get more information, it strikes me that doctors will start to need to treat patients and their microbiome. But that seems like a lot for one um, profession, uh, the doctor's profession to know and lots of variables for them to take into account. I- I'm just sort of wondering, is, is it feasible for doctors to take on this entirely new field as part of their, uh, as part of their profession for, for dealing with health? Or maybe should we be looking at some new kind of profession to rise up to work with medical doctors to help on the microbiome side? Oh, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think, like, I think doctors will just have to get more savvy about this. You know, it's it's part of the 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 revolution in twenty first century medicine that touches on things like genetics. Um, you know, it it 
I just think this is going to be a part of what medicine is in the future. You know, if you go to um, if you go to a doctor, you may get your microbiome sampled, and you may and they may need to have to um, tailor your treatments based on which microbes you have. They'll need to be able to talk to you about that. I think that um, you know it's it's just part of what medicine is going to turn into. It's interesting as well, because while um, the general public is starting to learn more about this, I think doctors in the health profession is also starting to grapple with some of their policies and procedures that have been in place for a long time, like sterilizing everything in a hospital, which it turns out may not actually be the best way to go. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, you know, I think I think one needs to... Um, <clears throat> oh, so, so the idea here is that if you try and sterilize the surface for, for a start like you can't really do it like there are just microbes everywhere they get onto everything like i am sitting here bleeding microbes into the world around me at the moment so what like, an attractive picture Ed. <laughs> thank you thank you uh, yeah um uh you know the the um yeah it's a bit it's a bit like pig pen right like i feel like it's, it's, it's like miasma of microbes around me so so it, part of the you know, just being in spaces where humans exist, uh, there are going to be microbes. So um, if you remove microbes from a surface, you might create vacancies where things that we don't want to be there, like the ones that actually do cause disease, can take up hold. Um, so we need to get very savvy, I think, about about our relationship to the microbial world and how, how our um, indoor architecture affects that and that matters for hospitals because that's obviously a key interface where the microbes that are present are in a position to influence the health of lots of patients where you know we practice sterility a lot but i think it's an open question about whether those practices are making things better or worse now you know obviously you don't want to go too far and say you shouldn't bother sterilizing anything like you know, if I'm going to hospital for an operation and someone is going to stick instruments inside my body, I want those things to be sterilized. Um, that's not going to change. But what might change is, you know, how our attitudes to 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 rooms and surfaces. Like, what do you, for simple things, like, do you open a window in a hospital? I think actually you should do. You want environmental microbes to come into those surfaces rather than just having. Um, rooms where you're kind of stewing in the microbes of people who are sick and are bleeding their microbes into that space. It seems counterintuitive, I think, for a lot of people to think that you want your nurse to have washed their hands, but you also want your hospital window to be open. Those seem like conflicting ideas. Uh Totally, uh, you know, and I think it's 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 a very counterintuitive thing. Um, you know, we we still want to, of course, test that all these ideas are true, and I think we're, we're sort of some way towards that, but not fully yet. But um, but you're right. I, I think that um, I think that comes up against um, that comes up against some of the the problems that um, we talked about at the very start of this chat. That we just had this deep cultural idea of microbes being a problem so it's very hard to think about steps that would encourage the presence of microbes in the world around us you know as things that we wanted to do to improve our health it just sort of it hits up against this this deep-seated cultural notion of these things as bad this bumps up of course against the hygiene hypothesis as well which is this idea that 
that things sometimes shouldn't be too clean, that we need to have exposure to microbes and to bacteria, both because some of them are, are beneficial to us, because in order to function in the world and work well in our ecosystem, we need those relationships, but also because it helps to build our immune system so that we can recognize the properly bad stuff when it comes into us and, and our system's ready to, to push it out. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think there's a lot of uh, growing um, evidence for the hygiene hypothesis. So this is the idea that um, that um as as you say that uh we need exposure to microbes at an early age like a wide range of them in order to properly educate our immune system about what's out there in the environment and if we don't get that education we end up with this hyperactive immune system that is more likely to overact against benign threats which explains things like allergies uh, autoimmune diseases um you know you you name it um so I think there's a lot of value to this idea, and certainly the microbiome, um, the science of the microbiome has put a lot of, um, uh, has generated a lot of supporting evidence for this. Um, and, and I think it speaks to this idea that, you know, things like dirt are not necessarily, is not necessarily a bad thing for us, and maybe we have overly, um, maybe we have gone overboard in our attempts to, to sanitize and sterilize the world around us. One of the uh, the areas of high interest um, when we're talking about the microbiome, especially when it comes to uh, ideas of um, our immune system is with babies, both in how they get their microbiome and how their health is impacted over the short and long term if -hmm. their microbiome doesn't get populated correctly. So what do we know about how we pass on our adult microbiome to our babies? So yeah, I, I think this is. A, I'm, I'm glad you asked this because there, there, there's a lot of. Um, th- this is another area where I think there's a fair bit of hype. So there's normally um, the womb is a sterile environment, and when babies are born, um, they uh, receive their first microbes from their mother's vaginal tract, um, and those become the first colonists that take up shop, and then that then. Um, that then uh, you know cre- create the sort of starter communities um, for for the babies. Now, if a baby is born through C-section, it gets those starter microbes from uh, mother's skin or from the hospital environment rather than from her vagina. Um, and because of that, some people have suggested that those initial differences could set the babies up for different communities of microbes as they grow up, which might lead to poorer health, like uh, uh, um, maybe their immune system doesn't get the right education early on. Um, maybe they they then get have, have maybe they have a higher risk of uh, obesity or asthma or all sorts of other things. Now, the problem with that idea is if you look at adults who have um, who were born through either C-sections or vaginal deliveries, you can't see any differences in their microbiomes anymore. And that's also the case for you know older uh, babies who so for very young children so clearly those initial differences normalize they they disappear after some time and the important question then is whether those differences to the extent that they exist initially whether those have lasting repercussions for a child's health 
I still think we don't know the answer to that question. But there's a lot of talk out there in the media as if we actually do, as if this was a very well-established risk factor for poorer health later on. And I think that's a case of the the um, the rhetoric around the microbiome uh, jumping too far ahead of what the actual science has shown. And I think it's also an example of where certain factions of people who already have beliefs around vaginal births versus C-section births kind of glom onto a headline or a little bit of science in a paper that they may have, have read or not read, maybe just heard about, and, and use that as part of their political rhetoric. Yeah, I, I think that is absolutely the case i've seen that um in some interviews in some some of the q and a's i've had after a talk you know um i think sadly people are all too keen to tell women what to do with their bodies um and with their reproductive choices um and you know the the microbiome just becomes yet another tool for doing that um and and i think we just need to be very careful here um you know i, I think we need to base um if if there are concerns that these sorts of things could influence um a a baby's health later on fine you know we need to test that and it's totally legit to to portray that as a hypothesis that we're testing but i think there's a big difference between doing that and say c-sections are harming your babies because of their microbes Ed, thank you so much. Really uh, fascinating book with so much information in it and so many great examples of, uh, like I said, science fiction-like relationships that are happening in the world right now, which is really cool. Thanks, Rochelle. Really good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on again. And if you want to learn more about Ed Yong, his writing or his book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life, we of course have links to get you started on our website, which you'll find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. With me is Emily Monison, an environmental toxicologist and writer. She is an independent scholar at the Ronin Institute and an adjunct professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's the editor of Motherhood, the Elephant in the Laboratory, and is the author of three books, including her most recent, Natural Defense, Enlisting Bugs and Germs to Protect Our Food and Health. Emily, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, Rochelle. Thank you for having me. So this book is interesting, mostly because uh, you look at some of the newest science in microbiology and some of the challenges uh, in health and agriculture, but you kind of look at them together, which is something we don't often see. Typically, uh, any book that deals with some of the new stuff about microbiology is focused more on the microbiome and is really focused on health. So why bring the two topics, medicine and agriculture, together in one book? Because I think uh, when, you, when, we, when we're thinking about some of these sort of um, non-traditional or alternative, I, I don't really want to call them alternative, but different kinds of solutions other than using the traditional kinds of chemicals that we've used like antibiotics and pesticides, a lot of the solutions and new strategies, or some of these are old strategies becoming new again, are really similar because 
uh, particularly for thinking this wasn't just focused on um, microbes. Uh, so I go into sort of pests and pathogens um, or pathogens and pests. But um, but when we do start off thinking about microbes and bacteria and pathogens, um, a lot of the solutions, whether we're thinking about human health or agriculture health, are similar, starting with sort of our realization of the importance of the microbiome, as you mentioned. So in human health, we're all now very aware of the human microbiome and the importance in that we don't want to wipe out the microbiome when we're trying to target a particular pathogen. And it's very similar in agriculture as well, that that, um, that the soil microbiome or the rhizobiome or whatever you want to call it, um, rhizo rhizosphere zoo, some people call it, all the different bacteria that are in the root zone, um, is very important for maintaining health of um, plants and crops. And so this is something that I think some growers know and probably a lot of growers know maybe intuitively or know that and organic in particular. But it's something that in conventional farming has been kind of forgotten with all of our dependence on a lot of the sort of chemical agriculture. And so I think people are starting to come back to this, uh, thinking about the importance of the sort of microbial ecology and so whether you're thinking about microbial ecology in human systems, in our bodies, or in agricultural systems, it's a similar kind of thing. We hear a lot about how bacterial ecology, and in particular, the microbiome is going to change medicine or is already changing medicines. I mean, there is headlines mm -hmm. about those kinds of topics all the time. Um, but why aren't we hearing as much about how the same kind of change in understanding of bacterial ecology might be able to change agriculture? So, you know, I, first of all, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm newer to agriculture. Um, but, and so I, I was thinking, I think this is really cool. And I'm thinking, but this must be known. This is like, you know, who doesn't know that soil microbes are important? People compost. And, but like I said, I think that's something that's, um, uh, taken into consideration with sort of organic growers know that and sort of people who are into more sustainable growing. But with conventional agriculture, it's something that I, I guess has sort of been, um, forgotten. And it's something that, uh, there are books, and I think you spoke to someone, David Montgomery, about, um, the hidden half of nature, maybe, um, and talking about the importance of soil microbes and things like agriculture. And there's, I don't know how that came to be. I think it's just the way, uh, sort of conventional and industrial agriculture, um, emerged over the last sort of 50 or 60 years. But now there are, there's, you know, there's a scientist from USDA who goes around showing conventional growers the importance of a healthy soil microbiome. And when he, he does sort of visual demonstrations, I think it becomes very clear how important it is to think about soil health in terms of the living organisms in soil, not just nutrients and that sort of thing. Um, so I think it's something that, um, is just coming back in, in part because uh, I think we're all more aware that we want to reduce our reliance on chemicals. I don't. I, I would guess that even conventional growers, if they didn't have to rely on chemicals, they wouldn't. Um, so anything that can help reduce that, and if that means creating a healthier soil, um, and it's better to prevent runoff and all sorts of things, um, then you know that's a better way to go. But you know, how do you do that? And so there are people now who are sort of going back to uh, large-scale growers and trying to get them to think about soil health. And there was just a big a whole issue 
um, in one of the Journal of Ecology, I think it was, or some journal about uh, sort of sustainable agriculture and the importance of microbes in the soil and thinking about sort of the soil microbiome. So I think there's a lot of excitement around this now. And another thing that probably contributed to this is, uh, so in the book I talked about um, the, the sort of uh, technological advances in things like DNA analysis, and that combined with computing power have enabled scientists to do more genomics work and sort of understand uh, how many microbes and who's in the soil and what kind of microbes and what, what their services are and all sorts of their function. And so we're understanding so much more about what we couldn't really understand before. You know, before when people were studying microbes, it's really what you could culture in the lab. And that's the same thing with humans as well, right? We understood what we could culture in the lab, and that's just a small fraction of what's out there. And so now there's this explosion in understanding that there's just millions of different microbes and, you know, they all have different functions and roles and they work together in their complex communities. And so I think now that there's this understanding, maybe it's sort of made more visual. Um, people are made more, pay, maybe paying more attention to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it probably helps with healthcare topics that health is, is for everybody more of a meet, an immediate concern. We're so divorced and kind of separated from our food process here in the West that it just is probably not as sexy a headline. Well, yeah, that's, that's true too. Um, and so, but I think that the two together, um, there's some synergy. One of the parallels that you draw that I definitely hadn't thought of in agriculture was the idea how um, an antibiotic such as penicillin, penicillin, when we take it, it tends to wipe out all of like our gut bacteria, the good and the bad kind of indiscriminately. And this whole idea of having good bacteria, helpful bacteria in medicine is, is really something we're starting to think more carefully about. And you definitely in the book draw that parallel to agriculture with the idea of pesticides, how quite often our use of pesticides very much is like a wholesale antibiotic. It will wipe out everything, including a lot of the time, some of the good bacteria that really we want to keep in place because it, it's helpful to the plants we're trying to grow. Right. So the story that I write about in the book um, that most <clears throat> is in alignment with that idea is the story of the strawberry growers in California, which I thought was just kind of fascinating to me as a toxicologist, in part because what they had been doing in California is using methyl bromide, which is a fumigant, um, to sort of basically uh, fumigate the soil before planting strawberries and basically sterilizing the top layer of the soil. So, you know, broad spectrum, kill everything. Um, but what happened is that's an ozone-destroying chemical, and so it was supposed to be phased out according to the Montreal pr Protocol, which it was, but because strawberry growers really wanted that chemical and felt they needed it, it wasn't phased out in California until just last year. And that was really a go-to chemical, and, and it controlled particular diseases. And so what that left them with was scrambling for a better way. And so some of the scientists I spoke to are scientists who are really trying to think about the soil microbiome and think about how can we encourage beneficial bacteria that can help suppress disease. So they're trying to create or encourage what they call disease-suppressive soils. And these are soils that contain sort of micro, a microbial community that will discourage disease and sort of fend off some of the pathogens, and at the same time, uh, sort of encourage or provide nutrients to the plants, and so sort of create a better situation for the plants. And so it's really creating what the equivalent of sort of a healthy microbiome for the plants. 
Pesticides are interesting, and there's a couple of crops in particular that uh, I'd love for you to talk about because some of them I didn't know we were really reliant on pesticides to the extent that we are. And one of the examples you use in the book is apples um, and why we don't see a lot of uh, organic apples out there and how difficult it is to grow apples without pesticides. Yeah, so that was something that was, uh, you know, interesting to me, and I hadn't realized until until I started looking into this. So it's actually mostly in the East Coast. It's hard for the <clears throat> for growers to grow organic apples. I think it's not as hard in other places, which is where for those of us in the East Coast, which is where I am, a lot of our organic apples are coming from other places. But in the East Coast, there are a lot of you know a lot of um, pests and pathogens that attack our apples. And so um, I spoke to some uh, extent cooperative extension folks at the University of Massachusetts and um, who are working with growers to use uh, insect pheromones. And so to to um, and that is uh, well, so people have probably heard about pheromones because you can go online and get human pheromones if you want to attract a mate. I don't know how well they work in humans, but it's the same idea. So you have pheromones that attract insects, send out pheromones or chemical scents to attract mates. And so what they can do now, and they've been doing this for a long time, but I think the interest is growing, is to, you know, in apple orchards, uh, they've been using uh, one of their pests is called the coddling moth. And so that is an insect that will lay its eggs once it mates. It lays its eggs on the apples and then the little larvae burrow into their apples and you get your wormy apple. And so um, coddling moths use scent to attract their mates and they can, orchardists can now release these scents into the orchard um, and when there's so much scent, the thought is that the male moths can't find their mates because they're just confused. There's just too much scent instead of zeroing in on a mate. So it's called mating disruption with pheromones. And it's been really effective in some of these orchards um, where they've been able to, in some cases, uh, reduce the amount of pesticides they use by 75% or more for the coddling moth control. That doesn't mean that they, you know, they can't control everything, obviously, with that. But it's true, you know, I, have, I belong to an organic CSA here um, in Massachusetts, but they, they use IPM or integrated pest management apples because it's so hard to get organic apples here. That does seem to be a reoccurring challenge with the idea of moving away from what we think of as traditional pesticide and a traditional pesticide model is you have to be more targeted and quite often you can't just wholesale replace one technique with another. Like we're kind of used to replacing one pesticide with another. It's more about changing the idea of what pest control means and not sort of looking for that next kind of miracle easy button. That That is so true. So I think there's a lot of thinking, especially when thinking about sort of evolution, because people, I mean, like I said, evolution happens. And, you know, I've been on sort of some Twitter boards and other things where, you know, you can say, well, here's a new solution. And someone will say, yeah, but, you know, the pest will evolve to that, too. And that's true. So it really takes a total rethinking of the whole system and what you're trying to do. And so, you know, one thought is, is there sort of some level of whether it's a pest or a pathogen that can be allowed to sort of, you know, to let either the body or the plant or whatever fend off itself. So you don't try to like hammer these things out of existence because that clearly hasn't worked. Um, and so to take a more ecological approach and to think about it that way and to sort of think about how could how you could manage something rather than try to necessarily eradicate it. 
So when we talk about current pesticide usage, um, you mentioned that some of these strategies don't work or maybe don't work as well as we think we do or we think they do. Certainly, I think if you ask most people, most kind of average, not involved in the agriculture industry people, they would say, well, pesticides seem to be working quite well. There's lots of food at my grocery store and it doesn't cost very much. So what types of challenges are we having with current use of pesticides? Maybe over and above pesticide or uh, pesticide resistance, or is that really the big one that we're looking at? No, I don't think resistance is the only problem. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of pressure for reducing pesticides just from consumers, if that's what you're asking. So that's another challenge is that people really want, um, are much more aware of pesticides that are in their foods and produce and are demanding um, that growers use less. Um, I think they probably do, you know, I think if you were to ask a conventional grower, I think they really feel that they, these are useful products. Um, and I'm also, I'm not totally, so, uh, when talking about this or writing about this book, um, and the, um, you know, problems with overuse and over-reliance on things like pesticides and antibiotics, I have to say, I am, first of all, I'm not anti-antibiotics. <laughs> I think they're really important. Um, that's something I sometimes have to remind my, my mother, who's like, you know, my daughter says you shouldn't use antibiotics. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. And I think it's the same thing uh, with pesticides. I think we need to rethink how we do it. Maybe if we don't rely on them, there are always going to be pests and pathogens, and some of them are going to be very difficult to control. And so there may be times when these things need to be used. And we have this sort of, you know, our society, we tend to be all, all one thing or all the other thing where, you know, don't use any chemical or we have to use all chemical. And there's, you know, someplace in between where maybe we could just use less when we really need to and try to manage them in a better way that isn't so reliant on these kinds of sort of, you know, industrial age chemicals. I do think your book does a really good job of trying to walk that line, which so many books, especially when talking about agriculture and pest control and pesticides, where you have to find that space between uh, trying to find alternative methods that people want and that are probably better for the environment and probably more sustainable, but also don't start to kind of go fall into those tropes of um, chemical phobia that we sometimes see popping up in the media. And that's such a hard line to walk. It, it is. <laughs> so when I thought about doing this book, you know, the human side was easy. That's pretty clear. But the agricultural side is definitely and I also wrote about vaccines, which is another one of those areas where there's some, you know, well, it probably shouldn't be controversy, but it seems like there is. But but that gray area, I'm like, you know, when you're trying to sell a book, you know, my concern is that's not going to, it makes it difficult because there's probably a reason why the books that sell are either, you know, we need to go all organic or we need to, um, you know, we need these kinds of products or, or pesticides or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think that it, it's hard to be in that gray area, but I think it's really important. I mean, it, it applies to a lot of things that we do. But, um, you know, there's, you know, I, I, I would prefer not to have any fruits or vegetables with pesticides in them or that are that, you know, I'm sure anybody would like to do that. And so would a grower. But the fact is, like I said, you know, there's food is really hard to grow. And, you know, I, I, there's some papers I've seen where they they've made a distinction between sustainable and organic even. And I don't want to go there because I don't know enough about that area. But, you know, there is when I talk to the strawberry um, uh, ag extension people, you know, they said, you know, when growers need to do organic, they need more more space to grow them, um, to grow the crops. It takes more land. 
And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more expensive to do that too, so, which we pay for. One of the other really fascinating parallels that you wrote about in the book between medicine and agriculture that I think is really, I hadn't really thought that carefully about it until reading these chapters was about how identification and diagnosis, both for people, yeah. for health and for agricultural diseases and pests is a, is a major problem. And it's something that really hasn't changed very much. We're still mostly diagnosing disease in the same way we used to. We're mostly diagnosing agricultural problems in the same way we used to. Yeah, so that was something that was really surprised, surprising to me um, was to ask uh, uh, physicians sort of how do they diagnose when somebody comes into an ER, how do they diagnose a disease? And it turns out that they're still culturing. They, there are a lot of rapid tests. You know, you can walk in and get a strep test. My daughter's done it millions of times. You know, you have a sore throat, they'll give you a rapid test. But there's very few of those kinds of rapid tests, and you're looking for something that you think might be there. And so, which is... So for a diagnostician to just be able to tell whatever it is you have uh, without having some inkling or having a rapid test available doesn't yet really exist. Um, but there are ways now with sort of the genomics revolution to uh, do really rapid diagnosis of any disease, um, say in a blood sample or a urine sample. Um, and so these are things that aren't, uh, they're more in the experimental and the research realm right now. But I think, um, you know, there's some hope that they'll come into the medical realm and into the agricultural realm. So if you could quickly take, you know, so one of the things, you know, I wrote about some strategies uh, to not to, to sort of reduce chemical use. But of course, the flip side of that is prevention and um, of disease and rapid diagnosis, because if you could, you know, get to. Um, solving a problem quicker, it's less of a problem to solve, right? So if you can diagnose something quickly, that's better. So there's rapid DNA analysis that are coming, um, is coming, I think, soon, both to the farm and to, to um, hospitals. But there's also this really cool, I thought, um, and, you know, you might know more about this, but um, methods to diagnose um, disease, which is using um, machine learning um, and uh, based on apps. And so taking, say, you know, the goal, I wrote about a couple of um, researchers who are developing a phone app for diagnosis of plant disease, so plant pathogens, um, where a grower could just snap a picture of a spot or whatever is infecting their leaf and get a diagnosis for that within minutes. I mean, this is their hope. Um, it isn't quite there yet, but they're developing this. And so, you know, to think about that, you know, you could just take a snap a thick picture and get a diagnosis in seconds or minutes is really pretty incredible. And so that's something they're developing, um, called, it's called, part of it is called Plant Village. Um, but, you know, if you think about that, I'm like, well, why couldn't they do that for something like skin cancer? And sure enough, if you go into the literature, there are people now who are also developing um, machine learning apps where they can snap a picture of a spot or a speck on an arm and, um, you know, try to uh, diagnose skin cancers. Emily, thank you so much. It's a really interesting book uh, that I definitely recommend people pick up because it made me think about um, agriculture in a different way and using, for me, the hook of medicine to sort of create these parallels was really useful because I had heard about a lot of the stuff in medicine and to think about how the same kinds of structures or ideas can apply in agriculture really makes you think about it in a different way. Yeah, well, thank you. This has been a really kind of fun time to talk about this. So thank you, Rochelle.
And if you want to learn more about Emily Monison or her book, uh, or any of her books, we will have links to get you started, which you can find in the show notes for this episode on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 